your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Washburn. Alex has a PhD in mathematical biology from Princeton University and a background studying ecology and evolution and statistical modeling as it relates to the origins of uh, viral pandemics from wildlife spillovers and things like that. He recently published a preprint study with a couple of colleagues titled Endonuclease Fingerprint Indicates a Synthetic Origin of SARS-CoV-2, which comes to the conclusion that the SARS-CoV-2 virus likely resulted from laboratory research conducted on on viruses rather than from a wildlife spillover event where the virus came into the human population from an animal population. So we discussed the two hypotheses for how SARS-CoV-2 became the pandemic that it became. The, the wildlife spillover hypothesis being that it got to us from animals and the lab leak hypothesis being that it got to us from laboratory research activities. So we kind of talked about the history of the controversy around where this virus originated, what the evidence is for and against both the wildlife spillover and the lab leak hypotheses, how that has changed over time, how different people have argued both sides of the equation in terms of where this virus came from. And then we went through his paper in a fair amount of detail, uh, what they did, how their analysis was conducted, and what conclusions they came to about this. I also asked what the response to the study has been from other scientists, both those uh, critical of it and others. And we talked about the general state of science You know, when it comes to uh, what determines how things get funded, uh, what types of science get funded and who makes those decisions, uh, why there's been so much controversy and politicization with respect to this topic, the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and whether or not we'll, we will ever have a definitive answer to the question of where this virus came from and what kind of evidence it would take to actually determine that beyond all reasonable doubt. So if you're interested in the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the arguments for and against how it originated and how the pandemic got going, this will be an interesting episode for you. If you're listening to this on YouTube. Uh, the conversation is not going to be posted here. I just have the introduction. You can go to the link in the episode description and you'll be able to find the Mind and Matter Substack page for this episode. That page will have links for you to listen to the audio version or find the video version elsewhere. Uh, I recently had a conversation I posted a few months ago with the epidemiologist Dr. Martin Koldorf pulled from YouTube. They said it violated their policies, although I appealed that decision because I did not see how it actually violated those policies. Uh, but given the controversy and the sensitivity around this subject and how inflamed people can get when it comes to having open discussions about how SARS-CoV-2 became a global pandemic, where this virus came from, I decided just not to take the risk of putting it on YouTube. You know, I risk getting another strike and having my content pulled. So unfortunately, you'll have to watch it elsewhere if you want to watch the video version or listen to the audio version on my other channels. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on Minded Matter, please like, share, and subscribe. One of the best ways you can help support the podcast is to become either a free or a paid subscriber at mindandmatter.substack.com. As a free subscriber, you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter where I give you updates about the show, including upcoming guests and topics, uh, interesting research that I'm reading that's related to topics I discuss on the show, and other interesting content related to the types of things I gravitate towards uh, on this platform. You can also become a paid subscriber 
subscriber if you want to help the podcast grow, and I appreciate your support in any form. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Alex Washburn. Yeah, I have kind of a checkered past. Um, I grew up wanting to be an ecologist and I always loved lizards. I wanted to study lizards. As an undergraduate, I did a lot of different research projects from year to year, everything from ecology of lizards in the desert southwest to um, working on protein evolution at Brandeis University, to studying the immune system of snails, and finally kind of finding my niche, um, doing mathematical modeling and, and mathematical biology of viruses and their hosts. I got two undergraduate degrees, one in math and one in biology. Um, graduated summa cum laude or something like that, straight A's valedictorian, and um, went to Princeton with the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, which is a prestigious award for, for graduate studies. Um, at Princeton, I got a PhD in quantitative and computational biology, studying again kind of math and biology. I was really interested in statistics and evolution and um, ecology and parasites and hosts and you know, broadly, like the ecology is the interactions of organisms with each other and with their environment. Um, and that includes predator-prey interactions as well as host-parasite interactions. So <clears throat> under the broad stroke of ecology and evolutionary biology is basically everything <laughs> in biology. And so I really, again, have this checkered or one might also call holistic pass in biology. Did a postdoc at Duke University working on novel methods to analyze microbiome data sets. <clears throat> so microbiomes are the set of all the microbes that live on us or in us or in the soil or in any given place. And so you get these huge data sets of thousands of microbial species and you want to understand how they're changing. You know, are there some microbes that are associated with disease, whether that's inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease or whatever. Um, and so I built some methods to analyze these microbiome data sets in light of their evolutionary tree for instance, to find which lineages of microbes are impacted by an antibiotic or something like that. 
After Duke, I went on to Montana State University, which is what brought me to Bozeman. And this was back in 2017. And I started doing a postdoc that quickly turned into a research scientist position studying pathogen spillover from bats to people, of all things. Mm. <laughs> and so we were, uh, I was part of a team that received the DARPA preempt grant, which was one of the biggest grants available in the world to study pathogen spillover with the goal of preempting pathogens spillover and preventing pandemics. The team that I worked with studied Hanipa viruses like Nipah and Hendra, which are really bad viruses. They, you know, have like a 30 to 50% infection fatality rate. So very, very bad. Um, and yeah, so while I was working on DARPA, DARPA preempt work, I was doing a lot of modeling of pathogen spillover, the risks of pathogen spillover, you know, I was studying which sort of features predict or, you know, can help us understand or prevent pathogen spillover. Then COVID happened. Um, you know, one kind of, you know, one sort of branching, there's kind of no no linear way to explain this, but we'll go back in time to the postdoc at Duke. Um, so I had my postdoc advisor at Duke passed away just a few months into that position. So all the, you know, tree math and stuff that I did was just kind of on my own, um, I started at that time moonlighting at a hedge fund to do a bunch of quantitative data analysis and time series analysis. So I did a lot of forecasting on the side, and I did that throughout. And that was one of the real assets for predicting paths and spillover. When COVID happened, these worlds collided because COVID was the biggest macroeconomic issue, and there's a lot of forecasting needs. When will the outbreak happen? How bad will it be? stuff like that. So I'd switch from pathogen spillover to doing medical demand forecasts for years throughout COVID. This included in February 2020, I was one of the first, if not the first person to say that there could be a huge surge in March 2020. And at the time, the conventional forecast was that there'd be slow 6.2 day doubling times of cases with June, July 2020 peaks. Remdesivir was slated to pass clinical trials in late April of 2020. Whereas my forecast said that places like New York City could experience these huge surges in March. <laughs> and, you know, late March 2020, we could see peaks, you know, with a lot of people being hospitalized and, you know, cases doubling every two to three days. So that was, you know, the first real like war zone of COVID was like before major surges happened outside of Wuhan, trying to figure out what the heck is going to happen. Um, and as you know, the there was a huge surge in March 2020 in New York City. Um, I shared this on a CDC forecasting call, and, um, and not a lot of people believed it until they saw the two to three day doubling times of ICU arrivals across providers in New York City. At that point, um, I got really connected with some medical managers in New York and elsewhere. And I mean, I could talk the entire session today, just about the odyssey of COVID forecasting. And, you know, that that's been a huge journey, but long and short of it is that it started in February, 2020. And I kept doing forecasts for every outbreak cycle all the way to Omicron and then BA5 provided my final forecast to some researchers connected with managers in New York city. Um, and then finally decided, you know, I want to get back into the spillover question, you know, where did this virus come from? Um, now during COVID, I left academia and 
just kind of branched off and did a lot of consulting and other things. And so, you know, now my, I'm not a research scientist. I'm at Montana State University. I'm just a guy. I ended up in the forecasting, doing a lot of trading on the stock market, um, just kind of anticipating when peaks would happen, how bad they would be, et cetera. Um, so right now, pay the bills with capital gains. And, you know, just had a lot of time to go back to my field of study and study the virus and read, read the literature on where people think it came from, what evidence they had to support those claims, et cetera. And so that's the long and short of it. It's kind of a checkered past, um, complicated background in ecology and economics and evolution and, and math and statistics and pathogen spillover. And so we're going to talk uh, primarily today about this question of where the SARS-CoV-2 virus came from. There are basically two hypotheses for for where this thing came from. One is called the zoonotic origin hypothesis or the natural spillover hypothesis, and the other is the lab leak hypothesis. So taking these one at a time and just describing for people what those hypotheses are and what they state, not worrying yet about what we think the balance of evidence is. What is a natural spillover? What does that hypothesis say? And what what would be true if that's the way that the virus uh, originated? The natural origin hypothesis or theory, um, however you want to call it, I, I call it a hypothesis, is that SARS-1 was in an animal that was not being manipulated by researchers. It could have been, you know, held by animal traders. It could have been someone's pet, who knows what, um, but it, that it was in an animal. And then it went from that animal to people without any research related activities involved. The lab origin hypothesis says that there was probably, there could have been, believes that there was research related activities that brought the virus to Wuhan that played a role in the virus entering the human population. So the uh, question here is whether scientific research brought the virus into the human population. And so you've got spillover events where a virus is naturally circulating in some animal species. And then, you know, where its name comes from is it then, you know, spills over to us. It gets to us via another animal, maybe through an, a, a second intermediate host species. The lab leak is basically, you know, there's scientists doing research in the lab, t- tinkering with viruses, and um, it spills out of the lab as a result of that research. How, you know, how common or how rare are each of these scenarios? Do you see, do we see in general over the years, lots of viruses jumping into humans from animals? And do we see um, any like lab leaks happening each year? Yeah. So, you know, all viruses come from somewhere and, you know, every virus that's infected humans came from somewhere. You know, some of them came from, you know, thousands of years ago in the agricultural revolution. We started chumming around with domestic animals a little bit more and that led some viruses to, you know, adapt to human populations or other viruses that are spilling over every single day. A good example of this will be vector-borne diseases like malaria or dengue or Zika. These viruses are just hopping from host to host and it's part of their natural life cycle to hop from host to host. So there are viruses that range in how sort of specialized and generalized they are. Spillover is really common. Natural spillover happens every day with Lyme disease, malaria, dengue, Zika, etc. 
Um, and then there are some really more dangerous pathogens that cause, you know, really dangerous outbreaks like Ebola, for example, which, or, I mean, another good example is Nipah virus. This is in the Nipah virus clade that we were studying before COVID, or that I was working with people studying before COVID. Nipah spills over commonly in the Nipah belt in Bangladesh and India by way of fruit bats. But what happens is that people, they go to these palm trees, date palm trees, and they like drinking the sap. So they put a stake in the tree and put a bucket under the stake so the sap drips down. The bats also like the sap. They go try to drink the sap, pee in the bucket. Someone drinks the bucket. They get ah. sick with a 50% infection fatality rate. Half of them die. And that can have onward transmission from person to person. And so spillover is really common. The severity of the disease varies significantly depending on the virus um, and other factors. And then how much onward transmission there there is and how much how well we're able to contain it varies a lot as well. And so broadly speaking, like 99.9999999, I could go on. Most of the viruses in nature have entered the human population through spillover. Okay. And it's only it's only recently that we've really started seeing this proliferation of virological research in these labs and start to study pathogens. I mean, we didn't even know, you know, about DNA is the, I mean, we knew, we didn't know about the genetic code until the late 1900s. We didn't sequence the first human genome until, I forget the late 1900s, early 2000s, but biology is, is a rapidly changing field. And so we're now seeing this proliferation of new kinds of research facilities that study viruses in a lab and accidents happen. You know, I mean, this is why we have chemical safety protocols when you're working in a lab on just old school chemistry, you know, you have showers in case you spill some chemical on yourself. And there's a lot of precautions taken in these BSL two, three or four labs. Um, honestly, I can't speak much about that as an expert because I haven't worked in one of those more, you know, intensive biosafety labs. Um, but I can say that accidents happen. And, you know, no matter what lab you work in, accidents can happen. And there are a lot of efforts to reduce the risk of accidents, but that risk never drops to zero. And especially if you start to have, as we saw, for instance, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology's report, some signs that they may not have had an adequate maintenance budget. Mm -hmm. Maintenance is important. You need your air filters to work. You need seals on things to be, you need things to be sealed so that, you know, air that may contain a pathogen stays in a place where you want it to stay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, you know, when we, you know, if we think about a virus accidentally getting leaked out of a lab where they're working on viruses, is this ultra rare today? Is this something that's like once in a, once in a human generation or is it more common than that? Something that happens every year, say? It's a lot more common than that. Um, for instance, there have been seven SARS outbreaks since the original SARS outbreak in 2002. Six of them were lab leaks, two of them in China. <laughs> and so from that sample, I would guess if it's a SARS coronavirus, it probably came from a lab. Just, you know, drawing those past events out of a hat. So it's it's sadly very common. And it wasn't until, you know, the SARS outbreak that people started being really worried and studying a lot of SARS coronaviruses in labs. And then that led to more lab accidents happening. And so Sadly, yeah, these are these accidents are more common than we like to acknowledge, or the, certainly more common than the public is aware. So it happens, you know, I would say several guess several times a year. Other people can speak more authoritatively on like 
what viruses and which labs, you know, the geographic and temporal patterns. Yeah. I mean, based on the conversations I've had, I think the the basic point here is lab leaks, just like natural spillovers are common, meaning they happen every year, um, multiple times a year, usually. And it's not like every single time it's some major world changing event, Uh, you know, it could be a fairly innocuous virus that, you know, doesn't really cause problems. Um, But the point is, you know, this is not an ultra rare thing. Both, both of these things, are a common way that viruses get into the human population. Exactly. I mean, I in as an undergrad, I studied schistosomes, which are these worms that infect snails. And you know, I I spilled water on myself that <laughs> that might have had schistosomes, and I was like, oh crap! You know, this is my. And so I had to then take some precautions and you know wash my hands and do some other things like that. Um, but it's just an people stumble and fumble and bumble. And that that's just part of the unfortunate reality is that mistakes happen. Um, yeah, lab leaks are common. And I think one point too, is that it's, there's important information about the geography and the virus itself. If someone has malaria in Brazil, my first guess is that it's not a lab leak. You know, malaria is common in Brazil. This is commonly spilling over from people, from animals into people, same with dengue or Zika, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the baseline hypothesis can vary depending on where you see an outbreak happen. If Ebola pops up in Congo, I might think that, well, it's probably natural spillover as well, because they don't have many labs studying Ebola in Congo. On the other hand, there's Hamilton, Montana, which has a BSL-4 lab that studies a lot of dangerous pathogens. And so if you saw Ebola or Nipah spillover, you know, or have an outbreak of these viruses in Hamilton, Montana, my first guess might be that it leaked from a lab. And so the location and the virus itself can provide a lot of information to kind of change our minds about what's likely. So, you know, before we get into your work and your sort of views on on the likelihood that this was a spillover or a lab leak for SARS-CoV-2, can you sort of steel man each case? So, because just for everyone listening, there's experts uh, who are very knowledgeable on the subject uh, some of whom favor the lab leak hypothesis, some of whom favor the natural spillover mm-hmm. hypothesis. Can you steel man each of these for us one at a time? So starting with the natural origins hypothesis, what are the what are the strongest arguments or best pieces of evidence that align with that hypothesis that we have today? Yeah, so the, the natural origin hypothesis has taken on many forms and many pieces of evidence have been presented over time. Um so there's a couple of ways. One way is you can look at this as like, what did people say over time? And then how did that kind of back and forth happen? Another way is like, if I were to just say, okay, I'm going to put on my natural origin hat today. <laughs> people would say that the strongest evidence for natural origin is that um, natural spillover happens. It's more common um, than lab leaks for most viruses and most of human history. And then they would say that, look, cases in December of 2020 were centered around the wet market. And the early outbreak evolutionary tree of SARS-2 had these two lineages that you know are called basal polytomies. The basals that they're at the bottom of the evolutionary tree, they're polytomies because they don't have just this bifurcating branch. They have many, many sub-lineages radiating out of a single common ancestor. So they said, how are we getting these two basal polytomies? They ran some simulations and said, well, it seems unlikely in their simulations that these would happen, that you get two basal polytomies from one spillover event. 
So they hypothesize there must have been two spillover events. And then they look at these lineages, lineage A and B, and then they find some early cases of lineage A, lineage B, and try to make the argument that these are centered around the wet market. So then they say, look, there's and, and just, just for people who don't know, what, what is a wet market? I might not have the right definition here. Um, as I understand it, there's an animal market, the Huron seafood market, which sells a whole bunch of different animals. And, you know, that's where viruses come from is from animals. And so this is a very natural point for humans in Wuhan to come in contact with animals that could have a coronavirus that is typically found in Laos or Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, there's just, there's wet markets in China um, and elsewhere. Uh, there's an association between the early SARS-CoV-2 outbreak in China and this wet market. Do we know for a fact that like the first infection happened in the wet market or is there just a general association that we know that people were getting infected who had gone to the market and had, had been there? Yeah. So to get straight to your point, we don't know that the first case came from the wet market because we don't actually know the index. There's no, we haven't found a patient zero, you know, that um, in early in the early outbreak, there were actually credible claims of cases going all the way back to mid-November that didn't have any connection with the wet market. So many of us who were kind of following the case data early on, which I was, you know, because I was part of the forecasting game, is you had to know everything about every case to know if it's going to peak in March in New York City or June or July. <laughs> there were early cases in mid-November that were reported, um, and those cases were not represented in this data set. The data set that was analyzed showing a spatial clustering of cases around the wet market came from the following process of a hospital realized there's a bunch of patients with a pneumonia of unknown etiolo etiology. And they said, huh, and they asked people, where'd you come from? Where'd you go? You know, what's, what's your story here? And they found that a lot of them had ties, about half of them had connections to the wet market. After that, they started contact and location tracing. And so they looked for people who were connected to the wet market and they found more cases there. So a lot of these early cases that were centered around the wet market came from a sampling process of early cases connected to the wet market, followed by contact tracing of people with connections to the wet market, which gave us a very strong signal of cases around a wet market. Now, you could do the same thing with a choir, right? If a bunch of people showed up and they're hospitalized and they all went to the same choir practice, you could do contact tracing, find more cases with a choir connection. That doesn't mean the choir was the site of spillover. Um, so, yeah, early cases had some different, you know, different stories. But again, they, those cases, we, we haven't, haven't actually had the sort of transparent, you know, testing of this case to demonstrate it was or wasn't COVID, they've kind of fallen aside in history. And we don't really know why they didn't like take that patient, run a zero survey to confirm or reject if they've actually had the virus. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, another thing that happened was some Chinese CDC officials went into the wet market and they sampled surfaces around the wet market. And they found there was no significant difference in the probability a test is positive on a surface whether that surface was near an animal vendor or a vegetable vendor. And so you might expect that if it were, if there were some outbreak within animals, that the animals would be infected and that there'd be more positive samples on surfaces near the animals. They also sampled over 420 animals at the wet market. None of them were positive. And this is important to contrast with the, the first SARS outbreak 
Mm. SARS-1 also had an outbreak that is much more clearly shown to be tied to the animal trade. One thing that shows it's tied to the animal trade is that it actually left, you know, animals were infected, animals were put in cages and trucks and they infect each other. And we saw this pattern of cases over a lot of Guangdong province. In contrast, we just see a single outbreak starting in Wuhan, not in all around Hubei province, but just a single outbreak in Wuhan, very close to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So we don't see this geographic pattern of an animal trade outbreak like we saw in SARS-1. What's more is that in SARS-1, they sampled just 25 animals. In the small sample of 25 animals, they found six, I believe it was civets or raccoon dogs that were positive and another either raccoon dog or civet that Mm -hmm. was positive. So they found positive animals right away. So so for the SARS-1 outbreak that was a number of years ago now in China, that was a wildlife spillover event. And we know that because they were able to quickly find animals, multiple animals that were infected with just this virus. And that happened very soon after identifying what the virus actually was. That's correct. And the virus that they found in the animals was much more closely related to SARS-1 than anything we found yet for SARS-2. I see. So for SARS-2, well, just just to sort of summarize the argument uh, for the wildlife spillover, it would basically be that there's been lots of wildlife spillovers where viruses get to humans from another animal in history. Um, Very common. Um, We know that in Wuhan, where uh, the first known outbreak happened, you have these wet markets where there's lots of different animals that could potentially have been infected. And there's lots of people in that initial outbreak who were infected that had some tie to the market. They had been there recently. They had plausibly been near animals of different kinds. And so there's the sort of circumstantial evidence um, that might lead you to believe like, okay, well, an, an animal in the wet market um, had this thing, someone got it, and now it's in the human population. But then you said there's also these weird observations such as, well, they didn't actually find any animals in the wet market that were infected by it. And we still, to this day, uh, you know, a couple of years later, have not identified an animal from which we, we can clearly say that this virus came. Yep. And the surfaces were just as likely to have the virus if it was under a vegetable versus an animal. Um, and another thing they did in SARS-1 very shortly after the outbreak is they looked at the serological evidence, you know, to see if who had antibodies against the virus. And they found a very high rate of seropositivity in animal handlers that was much higher than people who handle vegetables. So we have that evidence for SARS-1. We don't have that evidence for SARS-2. In fact, we have the opposite that, in, you know, that we don't have the serological evidence of people at the wet market, but we do have the observation that the surfaces were just as likely to be positive regardless whether they were near animals or vegetables, which suggests that there was probably a human that brought the virus to the market. And there was a super spreading event from human to human. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're now, I might as well ask you now, what's, what, what would what would the Steelman case be for the lab leak hypothesis? What's the best evidence that's consistent with that that we have today? So the lab origin, the research-related origin hypotheses cover a lot of different possibilities. You know, it could be anything from someone was trying to catch a bat and sample it from normal, benign, you know, coronavirus surveillance, and they got sick. So it could have been a completely natural, you know, bat to human spillover that just incidentally had a research connection for the reason why that person contacted that bat. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have some, you know, other theories of, oh, maybe it's a bioweapon or, you know, this. And so 
in the in the middle ground, you know, in this huge distribution of possibilities, the middle ground is that, well, this arose in Wuhan, which is far from the hot spots of coronavirus diversity. So the geographic evidence becomes important. The lack of a geographic footprint, like we saw with SARS-1, makes us less inclined to believe that this was an animal trade outbreak capable of causing two spillover events in humans in Wuhan without also causing a spillover event somewhere else in Hubei province or on the 1,000 mile journey from Hubei province to where the closest relatives of SARS-2 are found. So the lack of a geographic trail, the virus arising in Wuhan, and the virus had some very unusual features of its genome. Most of all is this furin cleavage site. And the furin cleavage site is this site that, um, and others again could tell you more about it than I could, because I'm not, you know, kind of jack of all trades <laughs> um, kind of guy, but I think the, the furin cleavage site is a site that the protein furin cuts and it enables cell entry. Um, so it helps the virus enter into the cell for, and the furin cleavage site in SARS-CoV-2 is not found in any other SARS coronavirus. So every other SARS coronavirus that we'd sampled over the decades since, you know, almost two decades since SARS-1 and all the coronaviruses that we'd sampled before then gave us a very clear signal that there just are not a lot of, or there's not any furin cleavage site in the SARS-CoV-virus lineage. So this, this is a, this is an outlier. This is a weird virus. This is not what we would expect to see from a SARS coronavirus outbreak, both in terms of the geographic fingerprint of the outbreak and the furin cleavage site. And the fact that it arose in Wuhan, which contains one of the world's, you know, hotspots of coronavirus research, that led people to hypothesize that maybe there's some connection to the coronavirus research that's conducted in Wuhan. So that's like, you know, that was the, that was the big early evidence for the lab origin hypothesis, which kind of, you know, the furin cleavage site is really strange because not only is this the only SARS coronavirus with the furin cleavage site, um, but it also has these two codons, CGG, CGG, which are not found anywhere else in SARS coronavirus. And it's found, this is a, very, a particular codon that isn't very common in bats. So it's unclear why that would happen in a bat virus, mm-hmm. but it's very common in humans. It's optimized for people. Okay. Um, so, so to summarize <clears throat> this piece, you know, up until, you know, since sort of the early part of the pandemic, <clears throat> the stuff that might make someone think that the lab leak was possible or plausible is, well, the first outbreak happened in Wuhan, which just happens to have this uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology where they work on SARS, vi- SARS-CoV uh, viruses like this. Um, the pattern of like early infection, how it spread, doesn't really look quite like SARS-1 and other viruses that we know for sure were wildlife spillover events. And the virus itself has molecular features that at the very least uh, don't really look like wild natural populations of coronaviruses that you would think this one came from if it did in fact spill over um, from a wildlife spillover event. So there's sort of these observations that might make one think, okay, well, maybe it's not a wildlife spillover. It actually came from research activities of some kind. Yeah. And that's, you know, you know, researchers knew about furin cleavage sites and they were interested in whether furin cleavage sites might enhance the transmissibility of a coronavirus. Um, and early on in the outbreak, we didn't have this evidence that, you know, that researchers were actively thinking about doing, you know, inserting a furin cleavage site in the SARS coronavirus. It's just, it's important to emphasize the evolutionary novelty 
The furin cleavage site is this insertion of 12 nucleotides. So some way, somehow, like this perfect 12 nucleotide string just got injected into exactly the right place of the virus. And it has these codons that are optimized for people. Um, and it happens in the SARS coronavirus that spills over in Wuhan. So that was curious. And shortly after this, when people started looking at that saying, I think this could have leaked from a lab. It's, a, it's something we need to examine and investigate. We had some people publishing articles saying, no way could this have come from a lab. You know, they in one of those people, um, it turns out, we didn't know at the time, but he wrote an article, this is Peter Daszak with, um, with Jeremy Farrar. They wrote an article in The Lancet saying, condemning conspiracy theories of a laboratory origin without disclosing a conflict of interest that we discovered a year later in 2021 that Daszak himself had co-authored a grant with the Wuhan Institute of Virology proposing to insert a furin cleavage site into a SARS coronavirus at Wuhan. So there's something unusual about that. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a piece of evidence in terms of the statement of intent from 2018. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just want to I just want to say too for the listeners, um, I've, I've had a couple of guests on to talk about this general subject or, or just coronavirus evolution and things like that. Um, I have invited Peter Daszak onto the podcast. Obviously, he's a very busy guy. He's probably got a really full inbox. He may never have seen my emails, but just so everyone knows, um, I have invited some of those people on to hear what they think about all of this. But but I've not gotten responses from them. Yeah, I think you know, it's. It's unfortunate that we haven't had the kind of transparency that could reject the laboratory origin if the zoonotic origin were true. If the zoonotic origin were true, you know, DASAC and the EcoHealth Alliance has been collecting coronaviruses for over a decade. They have a huge database of coronaviruses with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that would give us a lot more information on the natural coronavirus evolution. And so if we had those data and the zoonotic origin were true, it would be very, it would be much quicker to rule out a lab origin hypothesis. So it's a bit unusual that not only have we not seen these conflict of interest disclosures, but the lack of transparency, both in terms of not sharing the grant proposing to insert a furin cleavage site, as well as, you know, not sharing the database that could help us understand this quickly, um, is something to just keep in mind in terms of, I mean, it's not, it's not, strong evidence, but that's an important piece of the puzzle in terms of like what we know and what we don't know and why we don't know it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So can you maybe give people uh, now a little synopsis of, you know, we're going to talk about your paper in a few moments here and really dive into the details, but up to the paper that you re recently put, put out, not including that quite yet. Um, how has sort of the debate and the balance of evidence in favor of either the spillover hypothesis or the lab leak hypothesis changed in your view? Uh, what new evidence has sort of come out that might shift people one way or the other over the last couple of years? And how how has the scientific community been responding to that and talking about it and debating it? You know, so I, again, I was kind of sucked up in the metal demand for, medical demand forecast for a few years. And when I finally went back to read the literature on a zoonotic origin, it was extremely unusual for me because I was reading spillover literature before COVID and there were standards of evidence. There were ways that people described things that had this characteristic humility and you know, necessary statement of limitations that was just the culture of the field. And that was just strangely completely thrown out the window in mm -hmm. when it came to SARS-2 origins. And we would get these extremely strong claims 
that were oftentimes just speculations masquerading as fact. One example of this um, is that in the Proximal Origins paper, which was a paper written um, in early 2020, saying that they basically tried to refute a laboratory origin. In that paper, they would make an argument like this. They said, well, in a computer simulation, this surface protein of SARS-2 isn't optimal in its binding of a human receptor. So therefore it couldn't have been research related or it couldn't have been a bioweapon or it couldn't have been, you know, because it's suboptimal, but that's really weird because like nowhere was that ever a necessary criterion for a laboratory origin. In fact, sometimes too optimal of binding of a receptor can be bad for the virus, even if it is specifically adapted to people, because then it might not let go of the receptor and do the rest of its viral life cycle. So it was a really weird argument. And the virologist making it, I feel, should have known that and would have known that in 2019. And so there were these arguments presented that I, I read them and I was like, there's no way this is like, <laughs> this is just, it, it's, it seems very unusual. It was a straw man argument taking the most extreme scenario and presenting it as the only one for laboratory origin that in order for this to have been a lab, it has to be an optimal binding bioweapon and it, it's not. And so that, that doesn't really, it, it's a, it was a very weird effort to try to rule out a lab origin. Um, I'm, I'm just transparently, clearly like that's not there's given this whole spectrum of possibilities of lab origin saying, we think we rule out this one from a computer simulation. So therefore everything's ruled out. Doesn't hold. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I want to emphasize for people too, just how weird that is because, you know, in, uh, in the field of like molecular biology, very broadly speaking, and like all the scientists here, um, not all of them, but you know, this is sort of like molecular biology is what we're talking about. The, the people that have, uh, the most expertise in this area are going to have a lot of molecular sort of level knowledge for how these viruses work and all of this stuff to they're, they're very functional, very cause and effect people that do, you know, cause and effect experiments in labs for a living. And this type of scientist, I, I sort of was trained by these types of scientists. This is why I can speak to this for someone to base an argument off of a computer simulation is culturally very weird in this area of science. And it's it didn't stop there, you know? So that was 20, those were the first arguments refuting a lab leak. And then you have Dasak saying it's a conspiracy theory, not telling the world that he wrote a grant to insert a pure cleavage site in Wuhan, in a coronavirus in Wuhan. And then fast forward and you have more recent papers in science that have said, oh, look at these two basal polytomies, they again base their analysis off the simulation. They run an outbreak simulation and they say, in our outbreak simulation, we didn't find two basal polytomies. And so therefore they couldn't have happened by natural spillover there, or they couldn't have happened by a lab leak. They must've happened by two spillover events. And there's nothing about that. In fact, like the way you generate a polytomy is by one person spreading the virus to many people, <laughs> a super spreading event generates a polytomy. And this was shown in many other cases in Austria and choir practices, et cetera, that one person will have predominantly one strain of the virus within them. If they infect 60 more people, all 60 of those people will then have viruses that whose strains branch off of this common ancestor. Mm -hmm. And that's a polytomy. So all the two basal polytomies tell us is that there were probably two super spreading events 
which are very common for SARS. This is a you know one of the super spreading events account for the majority of cases in SARS two. So that was unusual. Then there was the the arguments about like oh cases you know from late December were clustered around the wet market. Um, but they they throw out cases that were earlier um, that had no connection to the wet market, and they don't consider the fact that contact tracing amplified our you know focus of cases around the wet market. So I saw that, and then in their language was unusual. They called this dispositive evidence, you know, that it rules out laboratory origin, and it doesn't. And so I think that when I saw these claims, there's something inside you that's just like feels like some when someone goes too far in an argument, you just have to like push back, say, no, you can't say that's not true. You can't, that's ridiculous. And th- there was a little bit of that in me of just like, but then I was like, why are they doing this? Why is there this consistent pattern of a very different argumentative style and very lower standard of evidence suddenly on this specific topic and for the purpose of making the specific claim that absolutely no way did this come from a lab? You know, it, and so that was weird. And so that was also weird when you learned that um, Anthony Fauci and and Francis Collins played some role. And Christian Anderson, who is an author on the Proximal Origin paper, thanked Fauci and Collins for their leadership in helping with this paper. And that's unusual because Fauci has run the U.S. biodefense funding since SARS-2. And they funded, NIAID funded EcoHealth Alliance for very similar work as what was proposed in their mm-hmm. diffuse grant saying they were going to yep. insert the fear and cleavage site. So yeah. that's a conflict of interest. Yeah. And again, just for listeners, just for the record, Christian Anderson, very, uh, very credentialed uh, person in this general field. Um, he strongly favors the spillover hypothesis, not the lab leak hypothesis. I've also reached out to him to ask him to give his perspective on this topic. And I know that some other people have as well. Um, Again, very busy guy, very uh, voluminous inbox, I assume, uh, but he has not responded to me either. But I, you know, I I'm trying to talk to experts who have different viewpoints on this, um, but it's it's been difficult. So, anyways, <clears throat> I don't think we need to belabor sort of the, the history here too much more. I've had other episodes um, on the subject. I think we've given people a decent survey of both hypotheses. So the question is, where did this virus come from? Is it related to uh, a wildlife spillover event or is it related to laboratory research of some kind? You recently, with a couple uh, colleagues, published a preprint that speaks to this, and we're going to go through that now. So I'm going to do a share screen. Um, It's not like we're going to go through this line by line, but it will be up on the video version for people. We're obviously going to do a really good job of verbalizing what we're talking about for those of you that can't see this. And um, the paper is called Endonuclease Fingerprint Indicates a Synthetic Origin of SARS-CoV-2. So to start out with Alex, can you give us an extremely simplified, bare bones overview of what this paper says before we kind of go into the nitty gritty? Absolutely. So if a virus were made in a lab, and if it were, especially if it had a furin cleavage site inserted in a lab, there's a particular way that researchers would have had to do that. Specifically, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus, and we can't work with just the RNA and insert a furin cleavage site into a you know, single-stranded RNA molecule. Instead, what we typically do is we build the virus, the DNA version of double-stranded DNA version of the virus, and then you can work with the DNA using your classic tricks of 
you know, cutting them with restriction enzymes to put into your ferrin cleavage site or whatever. Um, so this technology to assemble the DNA version of the virus and then transcribe it to a single-stranded RNA molecule, insert that RNA molecule into a cell, and poof, it starts making a virus. That's called the disinfectious clone technology. And there were specific ways that researchers tended to build these DNA clones of the virus before COVID. So we did a meta-analysis to look at all the infectious clones that were built on coronaviruses before COVID. And overwhelmingly, they were assembled by this method called type two directional assembly. This type two directional assembly refers, you know, there's a specific kind of enzyme that cuts DNA, but it leaves these sort of, let's see if I can do it with my hands here. It leaves these like sticky, sticky um, ends. So it cuts, it doesn't cut the DNA straight in half, but instead it kind of unzips it a little bit to leave these three to four nucleotide sticky ends. So that way you can reassemble the same DNA segments you know, one block at a time, the sticky ends will find their complementary sticky end glue together. So these restriction enzymes, type two restriction enzymes enable this, this cutting and pasting of DNA blocks to, you know, build these segments. You can make one segment, cut it with this restriction enzyme to leave these sticky ends, build another segment, cut it with the restriction enzyme, it'll get the complementary sticky end. You can kind of glue them together. And that's how you can assemble a large 30 kilobase DNA version of the virus. So this was a common method. Yeah. So, so okay. So just to, for people who have absolutely no background in this, if you want to put together a synthetic genome in a lab, basically what you're saying is a common way to do that is you take a, a genome, a big hunk of DNA, you chop it at certain parts of that genome, you chop it into smaller chunks using enzymes that cut the double-stranded double helix of DNA so that, you know, at the ends where it's being cut, one strand sort of overhangs and is single-stranded. And what that means or what that allows you to do is then stitch together smaller pieces to sort of reassemble or create a bigger piece of DNA. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It's all all about chopping up big pieces of DNA at particular locations, and then stitching things back together in the way that you want them stitched back together. Yep. And so typically what would happen is, you know, you would, you would get the viral RNA and you can either get the genome directly from that. And then you could print out these chunks of the genome, cut them, put those cut segments inside of a plasmid. And then that you could grow the E. coli containing that plasmid. And that's how you can get many, many, many copies and clone the virus, you know, and have more of it. You can make it, put it in a furin cleavage site in this, inside one chunk, and you can have these blocks, the building blocks of the virus that eventually you can then cut out of the plasmids with the same restriction enzymes, glue them together and make the virus itself. Then transcribe that DNA full length cDNA clone, put it in a cell, and then poof, the virus is born. So that was the method. Now, the way the researchers would do this is they would look at a viral genome, and there are there are many methods of assembly, and this ends up being important when it comes to you know the later discussions of our manuscript after release. Um, there are many ways to do this assembly. One of the common ways that was implemented and that was proposed for making these very efficient reverse genetic systems was to look at the viral genome and say, "Huh, well, it doesn't have all the cutting and pasting sites exactly where I want them." 
But with silent mutations, I can add and remove cutting sites to turn the coronavirus genome into roughly five to seven equally sized segments that are each cut up by these enzymes. And so researchers would look at a genome, they would see where they can add and remove these, these cutting sites by silent mutations, make those silent mutations, and then they would have a slightly modified version of the virus, the, of the virus that they would use to build their segments. And so the infectious clone looked a little bit different than the wild type virus. I see. So, so hold on there. So if you compare a synthetically created virus genome to a natural one, there's going to be differences between the two. And what you're saying is in order to create a genome synthetically, you basically want to like chop a genome up into five or six or seven about equally sized chunks using these things called restriction enzymes. But because the natural virus genome that you might be sort of working from doesn't necessarily contain those restriction enzyme sequences in exactly the right places for you to conveniently do this, the, the optimal way to do it, you introduce mutations into the genome, unnatural mutations that you're introducing as the experimenter. In a way, you said silent mutations. So you're introducing mutations that allow you to chop up this genome the way that's going to be easy for you to, to build stuff with it, but in a way that doesn't disrupt like what proteins are being made or what that virus genome is actually doing. That's exactly right. And you want to make sure they're silent mutations because, and they have to all be silent mutations, because if you add a non-silent mutation, you could disrupt the virus. And then the thing you're studying isn't at all like the wild virus. And so that's why the silent mutations were pretty essential. But yeah, so the, we looked at these historical examples of infectious clones and studied how researchers chose to place these cutting sites. And we saw that in wild type viruses, these cutting sites were pretty random. Whereas in the infectious clones, they had a very clear pattern of regular spacing. And so if you wanted to show the people who are watching this, we can look at figure two. I think that kind of captures what we, you know, the, the essence of our study. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen again. Can you see that paper, Alex? Sure can. Yep. Okay. So that's so figure one. We're looking at figure two. Let's, well, let's go back to figure one real quick, just as we have a visual here. And, oh, yeah. you know, this is, this is, we don't need to go into too much detail, but this is kind of a cartoon showing uh, you know, basically the process Alex was describing where you would uh, chop up a genome into different chunks and then use these things called restriction sites to stitch things back together. And, you know, is there anything else you want to say here, Alex, or do you think we covered it? Uh, I think this figure just, yeah, this figure shows the method and the reasons why and how you amplify these segments and plasmids and how you, or you can put them all into a bacterial artificial chromosome or back. Um, whether you're amplifying these chunks in a plasmid or a bacterial artificial chromosome, you would still have these same patterns of these type two restriction sites um, equally spaced, you know, in, in the genome. And so this figure is just kind of going through some of the design considerations as a bioengineer when you're trying to do this and then just telling people how it works. So, mm -hmm. yeah, basically the stuff that we've talked about here. Then figure two shows some very specific examples. In the first, in the top left here, part A, there's a MERS coronavirus. MERS spills over from camels to people and has a very high infection fatality rate, really dangerous. And they need to study this in the labs. So they look at the MERS genome and it has these restriction sites that are very randomly spaced that are not regularly spaced at all. And so when they modified the MERS coronavirus, they removed all the pre-existing restriction sites 
and added in six others to create seven fragments that are equally, more or less similarly, they're similarly sized. And notice they're not exactly equally sized. I see. Yeah. So, so what you're saying here is, so the top line here is basically the natural MERS virus. It has these two sites and they're just sort of in two spots, you know, wherever they happen to be in that virus. But then in this one, which is the one that's, uh, you know, worked on in the lab, those two spots are removed. So we don't see something here or here. And then you've got one, two, three, four, five, six of these sequences in the genome. And they're approximately evenly spaced um, from start to finish. That's exactly right. And the same thing happens in the in panel B with a different virus. This is a bat SARS coronavirus that was engineered at the Wuhan Institute of Virology called WIV-1. And WIV-1 had these four restriction sites, and three of them were actually in okay spots for the researchers. So what they did, and this is, you know, I'll walk you through. So they removed the first restriction site, and then they added several others, but of note, so they actually added the one at like 0.25, so a quarter of the way through the genome, and then the one slightly over halfway, and then the one 0.75. So they those are the ones they added first, and they tried to tried to synthesize it in the lab, only to find that this third segment was unstable. So they had to add another restriction site right in the middle there. Um, so this is kind of just showing the research process of how they, how people look at the genome and think about it and iterate to make, you know, in this case, you see there are some, there are some small fragments in there that were the consequence of otherwise unstable plasmids that had to be cut in two. Mm. Um, so, okay, yeah. so, so if, I'm, if I'm tracking you here, if you're working on a virus in a lab like MERS, you look at its genome and it doesn't have restriction sites in places that are convenient for you as the bioengineer to do what you want to do. So you're adding a bunch of these sites to places they don't normally show up in the genome. That's this panel. If you're working with another virus, you know it's got a few of these sites in its genome. A couple of them or three of them might be in places that are convenient. So you leave those ones in. So that's that one, that one, and that one. But then you need to add some more. And that's this one, this one, this one, and this one. That's right. And, you know, initially they started off with more evenly spaced sites, but then they put those segments into plasmids and they found out that the plasmids were unstable. They weren't able to faithfully replicate the E. coli and get, you know, a larger number of these segments. So they had to, because of the plasmid instability, they had to modify one of these sites to cut and make, you know, so that ended up making things slightly less evenly spaced. And this is just pointing out, like, you can get some small fragments um, that resulted here, and this is the, they called their fragments C1 and C2 because they fragments are typically you know alphabetized A B C D E F, um, and their fragment C was unstable, so they cut it into two two components C1 and C2 by by another step of adding an additional restriction site. Now the plasmid instability is important because this is one of the major bioengineering constraints: is that if your plasmid is too long, or the longer your plasmid is. The, sorry, the longer your segment is, the more likely it is to be unstable and to not be synthesizable. So as a, because of that, we realized that a really good statistic for identifying infectious clones would likely be the length of the longest fragment. That's something that if, you know, it, it carries information on the even spacing, because if the length of the longest fragment is the length of the genome, then you have as uneven a spacing as you can get. If the length of the longest fragment is one over the number of fragments and you have perfectly even spacing. And this longest fragment length additionally tells us something about how synthesizable it's likely to be. 
So that's why we use for our way of identifying these infectious clones, the length of the longest fragment is our test statistic for comparing natural versus infectious clone or engineered coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is if someone is doing the type of bioengineering where you want to make a synthetic genome like this, um, you're going to be chopping a big long piece of DNA up into segments using restriction enzymes. And in general, if the segments that come from chopping the DNA up are too long, it's not convenient from a bioengineering perspective to work with because these things become unstable. And so in general, choices will be made by the scientists doing the bioengineering to put the restriction enzyme sites in certain spots of the genome so that none of the fragments are likely to be too long. That's exactly right. Okay. And sometimes they iterate where they say, oh, we tried to make them very evenly spaced, but this one fragment was unstable. So then they cut that in half or they okay. try to cut it some way somehow to make it stable. And so there's other kinds of considerations that come in and in, in making these restriction maps, which is a set of all these restriction sites in the genome and their spacing, et cetera. Um, but yeah, so you can look at the length of the longest fragment as a function of the number of fragments. And if the length of the longest fragment is unusually short, given the number of fragments, then that's indication that these sites are more regularly spaced than you might expect by chance. Mm-hmm. So in order to get an understanding of what, you know, what, what do you expect in a wild, not engineered coronavirus, we took 70 other coronaviruses from NCBI drawn based on what we could find, you know, easily in R. Um, so with no kind of picking or choosing, but just every single coronavirus, we could get the full genome with the spike ORF, you know, in this database, all kind of lined up to help us build an evolutionary tree. We take these 70 coronaviruses and we digest them with a whole bunch of restriction enzymes and show because these restriction sites themselves are not under selection, um, they're randomly spaced in the genome of wild coronaviruses. They form a very regular wild type distribution, which is shown here in gray. That gives you a distribution of the length of the longest fragment as a function of the number of fragments. And infectious clones will fall into a narrow box of unusually short longest fragment lengths, typically between five to seven fragments. Here we have eight fragments because again, that with one, they tried to do seven fragments, but found fragment C to be unstable, cut it in half to make eight. Um, So actually that with one would be shifted one to the left in their original design. So the five to seven fragments is the idealized range for an infectious clone. And sometimes they fall out of that range by unstable plasmids. But that's a narrow range in terms of both the number of fragments and the length of the longest fragment falling underneath this sort of box plot that you see that you see there. So unusually short, long fragments in the five to seven fragment range, that's an infectious clone. Or that's the range that we think, you know, that that's indicative of infectious clones and consistent with the infectious clones in the literature. I see. So again, we're looking at data here for this MERS virus and this WIV virus. These are viruses that, you know, this is past data. So we know that these viruses were engineered in the lab. You're doing this analysis showing that when you engineer viruses like this, as has been done in these two examples, you are ending up chopping up the genome using restriction sites such that you get, you know, five or six, or in this case, seven or eight fragments. And they tend to be fragments that are shorter, lower on the graph here than you would find if you just sort of randomly chopped up the natural virus genome using this type of approach. That's exactly right. 
And so we had done a meta-analysis looking at all of the infectious clones built with type 2 directional assembly in coronaviruses from 2000 to 2019. Almost all of them were built in this way. And so we have 10 infectious clones that we use in our study to you know, show in the next figure, figure three, that they all cluster in that exact region. And so this is shown in, yeah, exactly. On the right, on the panel C there, all those infectious clones fall exactly within that box. In fact, there's only one of them that had the eight fragments and that was the WIV-1 because most of them, they intend to be in the five to seven range. So we can narrow that box even more. And SARS-2, again, is just smack in the middle of what we expect from an infectious clone. And so this is, you know, what we did, there were there are a lot of different possible type 2 enzymes that you could look at. We, in our paper, only looked at one pair of enzymes. Um, and this is, and if you go to the left, um, panel, yeah, panel B here. So... We had to think of, okay, we don't want to dredge the data. We don't want to just look at everything and then you know, not be so sure that we found something. Because if you, you know, test 100 hypotheses, you know, you'd expect 5%, 5 of them to have p-values less than 0.05. And so we didn't want to do that and dredge data, but we wanted to have some bioengineering reasoning that kind of drove our discovery here. So there's one enzyme that was commonly used pre-COVID was BGL-1. However, BGL-1 doesn't have a lot of options in sites that are already existing in coronavirus genomes. When we looked at the diffuse grant, the diffuse grant proposed, this is the grant that was written by EcoHealth Alliance, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and UNC, Ralph Barrick at UNC, who he's the guy who came up with this efficient reverse genetic system of cutting the genomes into five to seven fragments and stuff like that. Um, when you look at the diffuse grant, they cite very specific literature about how they're going to make chimeric coronaviruses in this lineage of SARS coronaviruses. And in order to make chimeric coronaviruses, you have to have the same cutting and pasting site across different species. So the BGL1 doesn't have a lot of conserved sites. So it's not actually a good candidate for creating this backbone to help you make chimeras across this broad lineage. So we reasoned that the other two most common enzymes on the market, BSA1 and BSMB1, would be more likely to be used. They have a lot of conserved sites, which are all these dots you see across coronaviruses. Every one of those dots gives you a place at which you can mix and match viral parts. So the BSA, and again, the BSA1, BSMB1, these are like, when you go to the store to buy restriction enzymes, these are the first ones they'll recommend. These are the, you know, this is the, the, the Air Jordans, these are the, the, the best ones on the market that you want to pick for this sort of type two directional assembly. Um, so this is not like a obscure set of enzymes we chose. These are the ones that were commonly used that were, were used previously for this exact procedure. And they, we reason that these are good ones to use for the purposes of the research proposed in the diffuse grant. Um, and so, yeah, you can see SARS-2, SARS we show the vertical dashed lines are its BSA-1 and BSMB-1 cutting sites. And those segments are fairly evenly spaced, although there is one small segment in between the last BSMB-1 and the first BSA-1 site. So, you know, that, again, that's, that's there we have small segments sometimes, um, but the length of the longest fragment 
That's the key constraint for bioengineering. A small fragment is totally manageable. You can have that small fragment in a plasmid, keep it there. And then every other segment here is docked by two of the same restriction sites. So you could take out, you know, if you have segment B, for example, the second segment in there, you could use just a BSMB1 enzyme, cut out that segment, manipulate it, put it back in. Um, and same for, you know, A, B, C, D, E. Segment E, which is the first one contained between two BSA1 enzyme, that contains a receptor binding domain. So if you wanted to insert a furin cleavage site, mm. you would have that segment in a plasmid surrounded by two BSA1 enzymes. You could cut it out. You could modify it as you please, put a furin cleavage site in there, put it back into the plasmid, and then you could reassemble the whole thing using the same method we described before. So I see. So, so this pattern here of these two restriction sites being at these places would make it very convenient to reassemble the genome and manipulate specific, very important regions of the genome, like the receptor binding domain. That's exactly right. And that was a region that was proposed to be, you know, the, the most interesting to recombine across this lineage. Um, and so, yeah, because that contains a spike protein, which is critical for receptor binding, and the receptor binding determines your host specificity. Are you able to bind onto a bat, or are you able to bind onto a human? So researchers were very interested in whether some of these viruses in this lineage have spike genes that make them better able to bind onto human receptors, and therefore better able to infect people. And they hypothesized in the Diffuse grant that if, should one of these SARS coronaviruses that, again, none of them had a furin cleavage site, should one of them get a furin cleavage site in its, you know, in between the S1 and S2 junction of the spike protein, then perhaps because humans have furin and that furin in humans would cleave this furin cleavage site, that could, you know, increase the infectivity of these viruses in humans. SARS-2 has a furin cleavage site in between its S1 and S2 junction. And so, yeah, so this would make it very easy to do the stated research in the diffuse grant. It would make it possible to insert a furin cleavage site exactly where we see one. Um, and as we show on that other panel, is just that this is a this is very consistent with an infectious clone. But we go even further because we say, okay, well, a lot can happen by chance, right? And it's a very low chance of having five to seven fragments and having that significantly low of a you know, longest fragment length. In fact, in terms of the type 2S enzymes or type 2 enzymes that could be used for this method, the BSA1, BSMB1 map of SARS-2 was the most likely to have been engineered of 1,491 other restriction maps that we were able to look at in this set of coronaviruses. So if there was ever a coronavirus that was engineered without people saying it was engineered, it would be SARS-CoV-2. But again, we had to look a little further. So we, we found that and we said, okay, that's interesting. That's a very strong you know, statistical pattern. There's less than a 0.07% chance of seeing that equally spaced of restriction site sites in a wild coronavirus. So we looked at, okay, what's the odds of this mutating from a close relative? And that's what we show here is that Banal 52 and RATG13 are two of the closest relatives of SARS-2. And it's a very low chance of random mutation generating a restriction map as, as extreme or more extreme than SARS-2 under random evolution. We give it a 1.2% chance for RATG13, and for the closer relative of SARS-2, which is Banal 52, 
a random mutation had an even less chance of generating this extreme, this extreme of an, this, this, yeah, this significantly short of longest fragment length. Um, so that's, that was one piece of evidence that we get in the follow-up, like, is this, maybe it could have happened easily from close relatives. It couldn't have happened easily from close relatives under this model of mutation here. The other thing we look at is, are all the mutations silent? Because again, that's the bioengineer's trick is silent mutations. And do we have a significantly higher rate of silent mutations within these sites than the rest of the genome? And both of those turns out are true. All of these so, so the so the idea is if you're bioengineering a genome, you introduce these things called silent mutations, which are going to make it easier for you to chop up and paste together pieces of DNA to do the synthetic work. But they're not disrupting the natural function of any of the the genes that are that are there. That's exactly right. And it turns out there were 14 mutations that separate the BSA1, BSMB1 map of SARS-2 with both of its close relatives, RITG13 and BNAV52. All of them were silent. Now, most mutations in a virus are silent. 84% of mutations are silent. But still, for all 14 to be silent, there's only a 9% chance of that happening if you're just doing a coin toss of every mutation. But then we did one other test. We asked, is there a higher rate of silent mutations per nucleotide within these restriction sites compared to the rest of the genome, not including those restriction sites. And that's where we found an incredibly significant signal of a much higher rate of silent mutations per nucleotide within these restriction sites than the rest of the genome. So when you combine all of this, that this restriction map is very unusual and is even spacing, in a virus, it's very unusual in a furin cleavage site coming out of Wuhan <laughs> with a very unusual pattern of spillover that doesn't have a geographic trail of infections like an animal trade outbreak typically does. And then when it has all the mutations separating, its restriction map from close relatives are silent and a higher rate of silent mutations within these sites than the rest of the genome, that body of evidence becomes very significant altogether. And so that's, you know, our paper, again, it looked at the restriction map as a hypothesis that if this was engineered in the lab, it probably would have been made by typical pre-COVID infectious clone technology. And we found the fingerprint of exactly that technology. And perhaps you can totally explain it by chance. It's possible it happened by chance. Some people have said, ah, you know, you could recombine parts of viruses and that could give you the same pattern. Mm -hmm. But every it's, other a it's a st statistical argument. Exactly. Every other coronavirus in our data set was also subject to recombination, and none of them had a, this significant, this most more, you know, none of them had a type 2 restriction map as significant infectious clone-like as SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. So what, what you're saying, what you're arguing based on your data here is that, yes, it's it's possible that a natural pattern of mutation and evolution happened to produce the patterns that you identified here. Uh, but that would be a very, very, very unusual thing to happen, statistically speaking. However, if this was an engineering event, this is not unusual at all. It's exactly what we'd expect from the diffuse grant. This is what was proposed in the diffuse grant was creating an infectious clone backbone in order to enable the assembly of chimeric spike proteins across this lineage of coronaviruses. And the way you would do that is by finding these conserved type two sites that allow you to sort of mix and match viral parts. Mm -hmm. So so let's explain that for people. So there's grants that were written that were out in the world 
said literally, we would like to get research money in order to do exactly this kind of thing. They said they wanted to add human optimized furin cleavage sites. So that would explain the CGG, CGG codons. Those are human optimized codons. They wanted to add human optimized furin cleavage sites and test the infectivity of chimeric viruses, infectious clones of these viruses with human optimized furin cleavage sites in human airway epithelial cells. And who, who is they? Who wanted to do that? This was a collaboration between EcoHealth Alliance. Peter Daszak is the president of EcoHealth Alliance, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, specifically Shisheng Li, and Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, who created this technology of, you know, who wrote the so, book. So the guy, Peter Daszak, the guy at EcoHealth Alliance, who has made his career out of funding this type of research and other types of research, who has said publicly that the lab leak thing is a conspiracy theory and basically it can't possibly happen, has literally written grants saying he wanted to do this kind of research. And he did not disclose that he wrote those grants. So he didn't, those grants were pried from their unwilling, uncooperative hands. The vice president of Eco, former vice president of EcoHealth has left and released a lot of materials to the world showing that this is what they were proposing to do before COVID. And that vice president of EcoHealth, former vice president, maintains that this virus was created in a collaboration between EcoHealth and Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, that's just one person's word, but that was the vice president of EcoHealth. So, so let's talk about what you think, and then let's talk about what other people think about this work and uh, you know things that are in this orbit. So, what do you? So, on given all of the evidence that you've seen, this is your perspective, your opinion based on your work and others' work that you've seen. You know, with your paper and everything else that's out there. Do you think that we have definitive evidence one way or the other for either hypothesis, or do you simply favor one hypothesis as being much more likely? Yeah, I think you never get definitive evidence in science, you know, very rarely. I mean, you get definitive evidence in math. You know, you can prove and disprove something formally with logic, but it's always a statistics game in science. You know, one theory becomes easier at explaining all the facts than another theory. Another theory just has these, you know, this stack of anomalies that each requires a very specific, oh, but maybe this happened kind of justification. And eventually they're like, well, I don't really like that theory. It doesn't help me predict something that I haven't seen yet. Um, so what's interesting is that this theory helped us predict the silent mutations, you know, and all these other, it helped us anticipate there could be this unusual restriction map in a coronavirus. Um, so, you know, when you look at the origin of the virus in Wuhan, far from the hotspot of wildlife coronaviruses. When you look at the lack of animal trade outbreak trails like we saw in Guangdong province for SARS-1, when you look at the earliest cases not having a connection to the wet market, when you look at the reports suggesting that there was, you know, substandard maintenance budget at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, when you look at the grant that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was a part of proposing to get back coronaviruses from Southeast Asia and put furin cleavage sites in them with human-optimized codons in an infectious clone. And then a SARS coronavirus shows up in Wuhan looking like an infectious clone with a furin cleavage site with human-optimized codons. It start, to me, I'm very strongly, I strongly believe that this likely arose from a lab 
the existence of this infectious clone restriction map suggests to me that it was likely an accident because I think if someone were doing malicious work, they would, you know, this is a huge, this is, you know, 18 million people died. Anyone, I can't imagine anyone with the expertise doing this and not additionally covering the tracks. Um, so I, it's, it, it looks like a lab accident of the research, you know, seeming the innocent but risky research proposed before COVID to swap parts on viruses and make a human infectious virus with a furin cleavage site and human optimized codons. And someone got sick and someone, you know, and then that would also explain why the Wuhan Institute of Virology and EcoHealth, which have a large database of coronaviruses, which Again, if their zoonotic origin were true, that database would help us see it clearly, much more clearly than we can now. We would have a much larger sample size of coronavirus genomes to study the evolution and say, oh, wow, this totally happened in nature. Like, look, here's all these viruses recombining in Laos and Yunnan province, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, so, so why don't we just look at that database? Uh, so the Wuhan Institute of Virology took it offline and China is not cooperating with investigators Interestingly, guess who was put at the as the U.S. emissary for the World Health Organization investigation into the Wuhan Institute of Virology or into the possible the COVID origins? This was Peter Daszak. Again, conflict of interest not disclosed. Very like huge conflict of interest, massive, like the biggest conflict of interest in the history of conflicts of interest that I've seen on this sort of thing. And so, you know, I think there's just a lot of that. Then you have the funders saying, absolutely no way was there a lab leak. No way. It's a conspiracy theory. That language is highly unusual. The literature trail is highly unusual. And then you have this very like concrete biological evidence. The first ever SARS coronavirus to fear in a cleavage site. The first SARS coronavirus, not one, but two CGG codons that are optimized for humans that has no close relative that helps us. And then again, the most significant infectious clone looking SARS, okay, sorry, most significant infectious clone looking coronavirus, not just a SARS coronavirus, any coronavirus. So when you put all that together, it it's still possible. I mean, anything's possible by chance, right? Like I could find a green fluorescent mouse outside of a lab in Norway where they make green fluorescent mice. And it's possible that that just happened by chance. But I would not be a good detective if I didn't start thinking like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe you know, it's the green fluorescent mouse lab. That's a Norway. reasonable hypothesis. <laughs> that's a good starting point. You know? Now, again, yeah. like green fluorescent, the, the recombination is more common in coronaviruses, but it's but the recombination of fear and cleavage sites with human codons and yeah. many recombination events making this infectious clone looking thing, that's not common. Yeah, it's kind of like that that John Stewart joke from a few months ago where he was like, oh yeah, where did this uh, coronavirus come from? Uh, it's like, well, did you ask the coronavirus lab <laughs> right next door? <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, not uh, just ask just a, maybe, just something. Yeah. I, I would like to ask them, you know, like, Hey, let's check out your database so we can all learn, you know, yeah. more about coronavirus evolution to understand and then, this and prevent the pandemic. And they, and they say, no, you definitely can't look at that. Yeah. No offline will not cooperate. So then that okay. lack of cooperation raises some questions. Okay. So let, let's just, let, obviously you did this paper, you have your perspective and it's yours and everything. Let's, let's just uh, try and flesh this out as fairly as possible. Um, I have not followed the online chatter around this too, too closely, but I know that, right. You put this preprint up 
Um, there's obviously chatter on Twitter and elsewhere on the internet from all the interested parties in this type of thing. Some people, um, it seems, think that this is a very interesting analysis that is probably mostly valid, and other people have been critical. So who have been your sort of highest profile, most critical critics, and, and what exactly have they criticized so far? So some people, the, the critic, the, you know, the jovial discussions on Twitter have, um, you know, have run a wide spectrum of, you know, legitimacy of statistical and scientific points. But I think the ones that come up, some people said, ah, you know, you're p-hacking or you're cherry picking genomes or something like that. And that's just not true based on what we did. You know, we chose the statistic of longest fragment length because of the bioengineering reasons we said. We chose these enzymes because of the bioengineering reasons we said. Um, and the consideration of what they were trying to do with the diffuse grant. Um, and we ran just standard statistical tests otherwise. And so the, the workflow was pretty straightforward. No p-hacking. In terms of cherry picking, they're like, oh, what about this genome? What about that genome? What and so these other genomes exist that we can, we've looked at. None of them have an infectious clone looking type 2 restriction maps. They actually increase the significance of SARS-2 in terms of its equal spacing of sites. However, some people say, look, some of these ones look like they could have been recombined with SARS-1. So recombination is common in coronaviruses. And this is probably the most significant and valid critique is saying that recombination is common. Um, maybe recombination could have caused this. So if you have a virus that is, I mean, let's take this. If you took SARS-1, cut it up into five chunks, put those five chunks into different viruses, then, yeah, you'd say recombination explains this exactly, right? You'd say recombination, you could put these five chunks together and that exactly explains it. So it's not the silent mutation thing. Those are just, that just happens by chance, they would say. I mean, it's still unusual, right? But there is this high concentration of silent mutations within these sites. So just by looking at these sites, we found hotspots of silent mutations. That's interesting. Um, but recombination could happen. The problem is we don't actually know that recombination happened. The recombination is inferred or hypothesized because we look at a whole bunch of different viruses over a whole bunch of different windows of the genome to see how similar are the sequences. Is this virus to SARS-2 or that virus to SARS-2? And so when you do this for 100, you know, I think they did it for 36 viruses across the whole length of the genome. And then they just found these cut points in the genome that seem to have slightly higher sequence similarity in some virus versus others and classify that as recombination. But of course, with statistics, we're, we don't know that that's true. It's uncertain. There could be other explanations for the sequence similarity um, that is broken across clades, um, mm -hmm. that we don't have this very clear, like, you know, like our genome, whether it's chromosome one, two, or three, will be more similar to chimpanzee chromosomes one, two, and three than mm -hmm. to gorillas, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we've gone into enough detail on this. We'll let people decide what they think based on our conversation and, and you know, going out and checking other resources. Obviously, we showed the paper. It's free online. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the mechanics of uh, making a paper like this um, and getting a preprint published in a peer-reviewed journal and how that interfaces with the sort of uh, controversy and politically charged nature of this subject in particular. So, you have a preprint online. Let's just describe for people who don't know what that is. What is a preprint and what are the next steps to get this peer reviewed? 
And what, you know, after you explain that, maybe talk about, you know, what do you think are maybe the extra challenges uh, that might be involved in getting something like this published in a peer-reviewed journal, given the the nature of the subject? So scientific peer review is there's there's as someone who's kind of straddled academic and private sector science, there are many forms of peer review. Um, we have these traditional peer reviewed journals that you submit your article to an editor and then the editor picks reviewers and then the reviewers, they might hate your guts or they might love you, or maybe they want to be your collaborator. And so they're going to be really nice to you. So there's some politics that happens in terms of like, you don't get to pick your reviewers. Your reviewers could totally hate your guts, completely disagree. They can sit on the paper for six months and no one ever sees it. And then they reject it ultimately. And the editor says, well, that's peer review, you know? So peer review does have some capacity tendency to, um, I guess, move all scientific outputs towards the mean, you know, towards whatever three peer reviewers are going to agree to. And if you're lucky, you have very open-minded peer reviewers who, you know, accept that there's a wide range of views on this issue and they look at your methods and they look at your logic and they say, okay, this is reasonable. You didn't cite this paper here. You know, maybe this other statistical test is more appropriate there. And they have usually relatively minor changes. Um, other times peer review can be quite nasty. Peer review can be, you know, some people, one paper I had was on COVID forecasts that correctly predicted the number of people that would die in 2020 from COVID. Um, that was rejected on public health grounds, saying this would be a risk to public health because if I, I estimated fewer people would die than conventional models estimate. So when you say that, they're like, oh, but you could inspire complacency and kill more people. And I thought my job as a statistician was to get the right answer and not to like think about, you know, if people are going to change their behavior based on my estimate of the size of a cow or the number of people that die from COVID in an unmitigated outbreak in South Dakota, for example. Um, so there's the peer review is complex. Many subfields of science just use preprint servers. Once you have scientists that care about being right and they care about you know contributing something meaningful to the literature, physics and mathematics, they often just submit their articles to the preprint server. And then if it's a good article, it gets cited straight from there. Hmm. So and physics so and physics and math do this the most. Uh, they, also they, still, just ha they also just happen to be the two most quantitatively rigorous fields. Yeah. And they, you know, you can, they read the papers from preprints. They know who's writing them. They're like, oh, this person's, you know, someone I trust. This person's from CERN. They're awesome, you know. And so they read it and you don't actually need to have this editorial filter, which some people point out can lead to gatekeeping. If the editor doesn't like you, you're not getting in. <laughs> you know, if the editor has come out vocally on Twitter saying they clearly are against lab origin hypothesis or something like that. You don't know, like, is this going to get its day in court? You know, is mm -hmm. this, is this a fair judge? A so, jury? so are you guys submitting this to a journal? Yeah, we are. Um, personally, I've kind of um, grown disillusioned with peer review in biology, just as a mathematical biologist. It's quite common that, you know, if you use math, people call it jargon. They're like, no, this is a bad paper. You know, like you shouldn't use these math words. And so there's just, it's a, it's, there is some very deep frustration in peer review, even for topics that are not that contentious, but just the issue of like, um, you know, I, I, 
I had the luxury of doing an alternative model of peer review in the private sector, both working with hedge funds and consulting biotech companies, seeing that like, no, we all were scientists. We care about doing this right. We care about being honest in our methods. And I wrote a bunch of white papers for these funds and they were just internally reviewed by people that cared about stuff getting done. You know, we have to get the paper done. We have to do it right. If this is wrong, then we lose money. So don't be wrong, you know, but also don't stop it unnecessarily just because we disagree with some premises or, you know, possible conclusions or, you know, the politics of the issue. So we're going to submit this paper somewhere. We're not sure where, because there's some journals that have shown a very clear bias in how they treat papers on this really contentious topic. I mean, this is, this is historic in its implications. If it's true that SARS arose from a lab, SARS-CoV-2 rose from a lab, then scientists created a pandemic that killed 18 million people. And that's three times the number of people that died in the Holocaust. And while the intention isn't as bad, like the stakes for human history are massive. And that's something that a lot of people have very strong opinions on and that some people are very afraid of the possibility if it were true that virologists created a virus that killed people like this, um, that, that that's devastating for trust in science, for virology research, for more. So it's very hard. Then who's your peer reviewer? You know, <laughs> how are we going to get like someone to look at the methods and look at it? We have a limitation section. You know, we have a whole section of the discussion saying like there are many limitations in our analysis. Yeah. We're going to add recombination as a limitation. You know, like we think these are important. But will we get our day in court? I don't know. And I, I, unfortunately, my experience with peer review at, on COVID specifically mm-hmm. um, has, has kind of killed my belief in the system. And I hate to say that, but like, I just don't think that we're going to get fast and rapid and accurate advances of science with this kind of entrenched interest that we have in, in the modern peer review system. And so I think there's better ways to do it that's for another call about like how we can have better scientific, more like decentralized scientific systems that allow people to, you know, especially when you have two big different paradigms that everyone disagrees strongly about. Mm-hmm. If you have to convince three peer reviewers and two out of three peer reviewers hate your theory, mm-hmm. you're never going to get through peer review. What even would, if you're uh, right. what would, uh, you know, given, everything that you've done and what you think right now about the likely origins of this virus, what would it look like for evidence to emerge that convinced you that this was a wildlife spillover? Um, you know, it would be a progenitor virus. You'd have to find a close relative and it would show that this recombination event, those hypothesized did in fact happen. Um, and we look at the databases of researchers studying coronaviruses. So they open up the database and we look at them and we're like, oh, wow, actually, look, here's a whole bunch of other SARS coronaviruses with furin cleavage sites. So here's, you know, like this interesting hotspot of recombination. That's exactly where recombination happened in SARS-2. So there's like, there's a bunch of ways that I would shift my prior, especially with transparency from the labs involved. Like that's, that's a, worth emphasizing is that we could disprove a lab origin with notebooks and communications and databases from the labs in question. So if the zoonotic origin were true, then the people who could be exonerated have the data that would exonerate them. 
<laughs> of this and so it's very unusual that that hasn't been shared given this you know given all this and so that's if that were shared and it were done in a very trusted and transparent way that and then I would you know I would look at those data and if people could confirm these sequences exist in nature then we start to be like oh yeah this is totally there was a lot we didn't know about SARS coronavirus evolution that was sitting on a database that now we know like oh this recombination is common um and then maybe they could find, you know, that this particular furin cleavage site turns out it has a hundred percent sequence identity to some pangolin RNA or something like that. You know, if they could replicate this recombination of a, this acquisition of a furin cleavage site, if that were replicated in a cell or an animal model, that would be reassuring too. So, um, there's just a bunch of stuff that could tilt the scales here. You know, which just requires explaining how did it get a furin cleavage site? How did it get this infectious clone restriction map? How did it get to Wuhan? And how come it didn't cause a broader geographic trail of infections in the animal trade? How come they researched all these animals in the wet market and found not a single one that was positive? Um, you know, that would be, we, there's some mysteries that we have to explain just because of how much the odds have been stacked against the zoonotic origin with the evidence that we have for a lab origin, the evidence we don't have for zoonotic origin, a lot has to happen to kind of pull belief back to a zoonotic origin. But if someone found a progenitor virus that you can replicate in the lab and show prove that it's true and not some you know potentially fabricated sequence, because I could do that. I could just write a sequence and say, oh, look, I found a progenitor and submit it and say like, this is a progenitor, you know, like here it is. And it could have been like, I just took the SARS-2 genome and like tweaked it in the, my computer and submit it. So we have to have some like real confirmation that the viruses being presented are real that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that they, and that they have to be done in a way that, that we can trust for posterity that a hundred years from now, people can look at and be like, Oh, this is totally a trusted scientific process. What has, you know, the past two years of all this stuff, how has it made you think about like the way that we prioritize and fund what science gets done and why? Oh, man. I mean, I left academic science just because of the heartbreak of seeing how how hostile science can be to new theories and to people with different opinions. Um, and I think that it's very easy for people to monopolize or form a monopoly or oligopoly over critical nodes of power in science, whether that's peer review or funding at the NIAID and NIH. If someone has too much power, power corrupts. And I think that it's totally possible that someone who runs U.S. biodefense funding could have an unnatural sway and, you know, potentially a lack of accountability should they have funded something that caused the pandemic. Um, I think we need more, you know, I, I don't want to go so far as to say we need to separate science and the state. You know, we separate the church and state. And if science is this like critical institution that's supposed to inform and consult policymakers on real things like climate change or, you know, weather events or pathogen spillover or new technology and drugs and AI and who knows what. And so science is really valuable for civilization, but it's not incorruptible. Um, you know, science is a belief system that is deeply tied to funding systems and to 
you know, very hierarchical systems of power and authority of who gets to talk, who's the expert, who's not. And I think it's very hard to sometimes come from the bottom or come from outside, even if you're right and say like, oh, you know, here's <laughs> here's something that just is, here's a different forecast that maybe SARS could cause a major outbreak in New York City in March, 2020. When I came up with that forecast, I had people saying, you're not an epidemiologist, you know, like stand down, you'll be responsible for the deaths of millions, I got told. If I say something that turned out to be true. Um, yeah, sh- shut up and stay in your lane. Shut up and stay in your lane. Yeah. And I think that's, so we have to like see science as a social system that it is and acknowledge that it is the system with with power and with personal reputational interests and skin in the game that can lead to people using their power in ways that don't serve the public good of science. You know, the public good of science is this impartial pursuit of truth and consideration of all the theories and hypotheses that are out there. But if you have someone like Anthony Fauci or, or Francis Collins, who has so much power in the medical science community, the health science community, they can totally you know, nudge editors of journals in the right direction to publish an article saying, don't look at, you know, there's no way these guys funded this research. Absolutely. You know, they couldn't have come from a lab. So there's just like, there's a lot of systems, the publication system, the funding system, the academic kind of institutions that, you know, have this like very clear pyramid of professorial prestige and rank. Um, those are the social systems of science. And we have to examine them critically and potentially reorganize them in order to ensure that science is this equitable and impartial endeavor. Um, so, you know, I, I've thought a bit about it. I'm working on a platform called Selva to make better scientific communication and social systems. It's designed to be a platform where PhDs are VIPs and people can join the platform. And if you're a PhD student or a PhD, we'll provide a venue for you to share your opinion and we're not going to filter it. We're not going to have some editorial gatekeeping or if a peer reviewer disagrees with your theory, they can't stop you from publishing it. So I think there's some like ways and eLife has actually done this. They've said that we're not going to prevent or allow peer reviewers to block a paper, which is a radical idea that authors have a right to publish because we have different beliefs and different opinions and we disagree strongly about some things in the scientific community, we have to have the right to share our side. Um, Because if we have an editor who disagrees with us or a peer reviewer who disagrees with us and they're allowed to slow walk our paper for six months or a year, or, you know, then just reject it outright, that's not good for public funded science. You know, that's not good for the people who want this to be a more efficient marketplace of ideas. So there's a lot that we can do to change science. And, you know, I left academia and I'm really interested in improving science still by making this science communication platform and trying anything to just make it better. It's totally doable, but we really have to look at science as a social system that it is and potentially rewire how we fund it, how we find good papers and amplify them. You know, like we use Twitter a lot. And so whoever's got the most followers on Twitter will drive the discussion in science. Is that equitable? Is that how we want it? Is that how ideas should get to bubble up into public awareness? It's not, I don't think that is the right way to do it. You know, I think it shouldn't be determined by Twitter followers or by which institution you're at. If you have a good paper, that should stand on its own, I hope. Um, And that's kind of the ideal that we can move closer towards. 
and preventing, you know, someone from having too much power in the funding of science to be able to block funding to someone they don't like or stop or fund, preferentially fund people supporting their theory. In this case, the real conflict of interest of some people actively, you know, like hiring their postdocs or PhD students and others in order to prop up a theory of natural origin that protects the funders who may have funded a, a hypothesized lab origin. Are they equitably funding other researchers who are investigating a possible lab origin? I don't think I, I have, we would have to look at that more carefully to understand, but you know, those are sorts of issues that we get with this again, kind of unaccountable power of science funding in the U S as it currently is. And especially with large international philanthropic funders, this is just like a $30 billion pot of money, you know, that someone sits on and they're like, oh, we're going to fund whoever the heck we want, you know, and they can benefit their own interests, but not necessarily the public interests of advancing science. So should they fund something that causes a pandemic, they could also fund people who cover it up. Hmm. Um, and that's something that we have to think about is that that's science funding and that determines who gets them, you know, tenure and rises in the rank of professor who becomes the expert that everyone consults in the New York Times when they want to ask whether this came from a lab or not. So there's these social systems in science that we have to be explicitly aware about in order to make science better for the 21st century. And that's what COVID, COVID has taught me is that I think we can do it. And it just takes more explicit you know, intention in our design of the scientific communication and social systems. Well, Alex, I want to uh, thank you for your time um, and sharing all of this with us. Are there any final thoughts or anything that you want to reiterate before we go? Um, keep an open mind, you know, like I'm eager to hear if someone has ideas about future research or, you know, things we may have overlooked in our own work. We're really interested in hearing that. We care a lot about the truth. Um, and I hope we can find out the answer to that sooner rather than later. All right. Alex Washburn, thank you very much. Thank you, too. Take care.